As Brad said, we're in a series at the moment in 1 Peter. And what 1 Peter is all about is this idea that, first of all, our identity is in Christ. Let me read you a verse that a lot of you that are new, that have not heard the whole series, uh, what happens in any epistle is that the writer often grounds our identity, who we are, what defines us, and then he moves from our identity into what then to, how does that then play out? What are the implications of that in my everyday life? And this is an identity statement in 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. That's who we are. We are in Christ. We have this living hope that we've been adopted into. And so what's happening in 1 Peter is Peter is talking to a group of people that are in the fringes of culture. They're on the fringe of society. And what Peter's trying to ground into the church is that the way that you live will then influence the people around you. And so he's encouraging the church to live such extraordinary lives. You've heard this statement over and over again if you've heard 1 Peter. But he's encouraging the church to live such extraordinary lives that it... That's right. Live such extraordinary lives that it demands an explanation. And so as we're grounded in our identity, then we live that out in our day-to-day lives. And so Brad has... uh, taken us through what it means to, as a result of our identity, to submit to authority uh, and and what that looks like. And also what we as servants in our workplace, how we submit to our masters in in that context. Uh, And then Matt took us through what it means for husbands or for wives to submit unto husbands and husbands to bear with their wives with understanding. Difficult passages Uh, And so we've seen all these individual instructions to different groups of people as a result of their identity in Christ. And today, uh, Peter, in summary, is going to be saying, now finally, all of you. So, So now it's not just each individual specific group, but finally, all of you, this is how you ought to conduct yourself in light of the gospel. This is how you ought to conduct yourself in light of your relational standing with the living God. And so today's sermon I've titled In-N-Out, partly because it's my favorite fast food chain in America. I must admit, I love In-N-Out burgers. If you ever go to America, go eat an In-N-Out burger. They are the best burger in the world. Um, And I've been looking for an excuse to name a sermon after my favorite burger joint, but it really has, that's where it kind of falls apart. There's not a whole lot of connection Besides the, fact that, besides the fact that we are going to be looking within and looking how we are to be a family and then how our family identity then starts to flow out and do what we look like to the world outside. So we're going to be looking at the in, the inward of the family, the church, the family of God, and then the outward and what that looks like. And so I can't do that apart from Holy Spirit making it uh, real to you and, and, and illuminating the scripture. And so let's pray together. Lord, we do want to just pause and come before you. Gracious Father, we pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say today. We pray, God, that you would quiet our hearts, quiet our minds from the busyness of life and that you would speak to us, God. We need to be transformed by you in these areas, God. And your word says that they'll know that, that you know, you'll, they'll know your love by how we treat one another, how we love. And so, God, we pray that as we look at what it looks like to be a family, would you unify us, God? Would you transform us for your glory, for your name's sake? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tara and I went to Ethiopia uh, a couple years ago, and there was something about Ethiopia that was that was different to any other country in Africa that we went to. In Ethiopia, there were more lame, maimed people than any other country that we went to in Africa that would, they they would drag themselves on the ground 
to get to different places where they could beg for food and for just the basic necessities. And they would have, there were some people that would have, you know, they would, they would make these guards all over their body just so they could drag themselves on the road to get to a place to where they could ask for money and get their needs met. And, and, I, and I'm going to tell you why I'm telling you that in a second. But now I want you to imagine a, a wedding, right? Imagine a wedding. Imagine this wedding is, it's a royal wedding, okay? It's, I mean, it's, it's big. It's bigger than a big fat Greek wedding. It's bigger than, you know, the, the, the princess getting married. It's huge. And the world is on looking, right? Looking on to this wedding. Not just those special guests that are invited, but everyone is invited to this wedding. And at this wedding, you know it's going to be amazing just by the decoration. I mean, the flowers are incredible. The displays are beautiful. It's going to be a decadent wedding. It's going to be huge. And as you look onto this wedding, uh, the TV cameras turn, and you know the, the bride's coming, right? The, the cameras turn back to the back of the aisle, and the, the bride is going to be stunning, right? Dressed in what? White, beautiful apparel. And people are going to go, wow, look at that bride. She is beautiful. Only to look back at that bride and see that that bride is maimed and lame and filthy and dirty. And is dragging herself along the center aisle. And the reason why I want to paint that picture for you is because I believe many years ago I was prayerfully thinking about the unity in the body of, the Christ, uh, body of Christ. And I have this picture of all these onlookers that aren't even a part of the church looking. And the bride, though we are individually, we are clean and spotless when we put our faith in Jesus. The whole idea of a marriage is that Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride. And we are an example of his amazing love that he went to sacrificially to purchase back his bride. And yet, I'm afraid that the bride is maimed in how we deal one with another all too often. We tear each other down, we beat up each other, and it's not healthy, church. It's not healthy at all. Peter is going to be talking to us about Five traits that the, the church, uh, God's people should look like or they should exhibit. And so look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. He says, finally, or the, now the end of what I've been saying, finally, now the end, all of you, again, all members... Not specific groups, but all of you are in question here. And then he says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Again, so, so Peter tells us to be a certain kind of people. And he does so by listing these five character traits. He says, first of all, all of you have unity of mind, or more literally, be harmonious. That is, have a common mindset. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we're all have to have the same tastes or gifts or habits, but rather the same thoughts and assessments of eternal life, of the essentials of the faith. Now, not only does Peter tell us to be harmonious with one another, but Jesus prayed this. You guys remember, right? Do you remember in John 17 when, when Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the 12 apostles. But then he goes on to extend his prayer to everyone. And he says this, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the apostles' words, that they may, be, that they may all be one. How much one? How much one did Jesus pray that we would be? Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. How much, as much as we are one, Jesus prayed, for us that we would be one. And what are they to be one in? The next thing Jesus says is the key. 
that they also may be in us. So, so how much one? As much as I am one. Where's our oneness? In him, in Christ, in us. That's where we are one. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Sounds like what Peter is on about, right? We're, we're on the fringes of society. We want the world to believe that we are legit, that we're not just, you know, hypocrites and, and you know, just playing games, putting on masks, that we're actually living such radically different lives, such countercultural lives that the world would demand an explanation. Jesus is saying the same thing, that they may believe on me. That's why Jesus prayed that we would be one. And so Jesus prayed this, but what else? The church displayed this. The early church displayed what it looked like in the book of Acts to be one. I'm sure you remember the story of Peter and John going up to the temple to pray, and they found a man lying at the temple gate, lame. And Peter said to the man, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. The guy rises up and walk and goes into the temple dancing, laughing, happy. And people start going and saying, by what name was this man made well? And the guy says, by the name of Jesus. Then what happens? The Sadducees were sad, you see, and they threw those men into prison. He was asking for alms, but he got legs and they weren't happy. And so they throw, him, they throw these men in prison that preach the name of Jesus. And as they throw the man in prison... As they arrest these men, these men are let out. There's no guilt that they can find. These men go back to their family who are praying for them, and they pray for boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. Why do they pray for boldness? Because they were just told, don't go tell anyone about this Jesus guy anymore. And so they go back, they pray for boldness, and they have boldness. And it says that the full number of those who believed were of one heart, one soul, no one said that any of his things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." That's radical oneness. This church was just told not to preach. They had great boldness, and then they had great oneness around the resurrection of Jesus, and they proclaimed it all the more. Now, I know it's easy for us just to jump off of that and think, oh, that was just the early church. You know, that was radical. I mean, they did community stuff that I don't do. They all lived together, and they sold everything, and they distributed as each one had need. But... but you're missing the point. This body of believers were one. They were perfectly united in Christ. Perfectly united. And so Peter's telling us to be one. Jesus prays that we would be one. The church displayed that we would be one. And the church also, we read in Romans 12, had a desperate daily need as the people of God to be one. In Romans 12, Romans 12, we're told, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. There it is, there it is again, in Christ. And individually, members of one another. And so it's one body with many members. Each member belongs to all the other members. It's, they're one. Do you guys get it? Are you, are you seeing this? I don't know if we fully understand what it means to be one. It's, you see, we, we say that we're one, really, we're, you know, oh yeah, we, we're one, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, but I don't know if actually that plays out very well. 
So we can see that we are called to be one. We are to live harmonious with one another. But the question is to ask ourselves, is do we? Do we live one? Can the culture look in on the church and see something that is countercultural? Can the world get a glimpse of a family when they look at us? As I've thought about my own experience in this, um, I tend to think that I don't believe that we have actually been a great example of what it means to be one to our world around us. I don't believe that we live very well in harmoniousness with one another. And I think there's a lot of reasons, as we're going to get into as we look at this a bit further. But I don't think, it's, I don't think we do a very good job of this. And I would encourage you guys to be really self-reflective in this area and to think about how well you do oneness, how of one mind you are with your brothers and sisters around you. I, I polled a few people this week. I, I went around and I asked a few people, what, what's been your experience in the church? How have you found uh, the church to be loving and caring and a family? And, and a lot of people that I polled, more than not, said, actually, this is an area where I feel like the church is very unhealthy. We're very good at tearing one another down, but we're not very good at being one. That's been my experience. I've not seen a lot of healthy experience in my you know, 17, 18 years of following Jesus within the church. I've seen a lot of backbiting, a lot of slander, a lot of tearing down. And according to Peter, it ought not to be the case. Now, it's easy to say, well, the church ought to be this, you know? This is what the church should be. The church should be one. But to lend from what Gandhi had to say, be the church that you want to see. Be the church that you want to see. If you think the church ought to be one and you're discontent and disillusioned with the church and you think the church is unhealthy, it's schism, it's, there's division, there's slander, it's not a place that I want to be a part of, church. Be the church that you want to see. Part of being the church, the church isn't these four walls. We are the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to be the church that we want to see in our world. A, a recent issue of National Geographic included a photograph of the fossil remains of two saber-toothed cats locked in combat. To quote the article, it said, one had bitten deep into the leg bone of the other, a thrust that trapped both in a common fate. The cause of death of the two cats is clear, and the causes of the extinction of their species is obvious. What happened was these cats, they fought each other, right? And there's a fossil remains of this one cat whose teeth are in the arm of another cat, and they just died like that. And I bring this up because it's cannibalism, right? I don't know if you guys know the story of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a missionary that went to a tribe in South America, and it was a cannibal tribe. He went to share his faith with this tribe and to, to share the good news of Jesus, and this tribe uh, didn't welcome him. Well, maybe they did welcome him in their own way, and they devoured him. He was, he was killed by this cannibal tribe, and the wife, Elizabeth Elliot, went back to America for, for a season, but then came back and continued to minister amongst those people. And that entire tribe came to faith, came to know Jesus, because she didn't let those people that were enemies or that had devoured her husband or had destroyed her husband come and, you know, uh, let it affect her love for them, her view of them in a gospel-centered way. And so this whole tribe gets saved. But cannibalism by nature is when the same species devour the same species. When a like animal devours another animal. And I believe that Christian cannibalism is alive and well today. You look at it all over the internet, guys. It grieves me. I read these articles all over where Christians are tearing down other Christians for minor things. Maybe you are some of those people. Maybe you have certain theological viewpoints that, that you might really hold of high value. When Christians fight each other, everybody loses. 
And as Paul put it, if you keep biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Galatians 5.15. So generally when Christians don't agree on issues, it gets nasty. Eat your own, stomach-churning, nasty. There was a time when I used to think that Christians that fought, they were, they were just like everyone else. You know, we fight like everyone else. And I grieved that because we as Christians are meant to be ministers of reconciliation. We should be different to the world. But I've changed my thoughts in a lot of ways on that. I don't think we fight like everyone else. I think we fight dirtier. I do. I think we fight dirtier. We use the Bible, we, we unsheath our double-edged sword hoping to finish off our opponent with a clear cut to their religiously misguided souls. We justify this as defenders of truth and dispensers of grace. We brandish our swords invoking God's blessing on our noble cause. And we use this sword of the Spirit to conquer rather than as a mirror, as a mirror to expose our own sin. And we cut each other's ear off and Jesus has to pick it up and put it back on, clean up the mess. It saddens me how poorly we conduct ourselves. My experience, I was saved in a church and went to this church for a long time. And this church was a particular church that had a theological viewpoint on eschatology. And they taught that if you don't see things the way I see things on the way that the world's going to end, you're basically not even a Christian. I mean, this is how the world's going to end, and this is how you have to believe it. And you need to go out and tell everyone. I've even had friends in that church say, hey, if you don't teach this theological viewpoint, the church will never be mature because... They'll never be expecting the Lord's return at every moment. They won't live holy and pure. And so they, they, they drill these things into me. I, I thought, actually, doesn't the gospel motivate me? Not, not the fact that God can come and I want to be like, really careful that he might find me doing well. Doesn't the gospel, the fact that I've been accepted in the beloved, I've been made right with God, doesn't that motivate me? But this church has this theological viewpoint. It's one of their distinctives, they call it. And they devour others over it. I was that. I was one of those guys. I looked down my snobby little nose at others that didn't have the same theological viewpoint as me, and I would judge them. So what does it mean to have the same mind? Why do we have the same mind? We are to be a family. We are to be like-minded. What does it mean to be harmonious? Again, I think the key, you guys, is for us to realize that we're in Christ. That is the key to being one. It doesn't mean that we don't have diversity. It doesn't mean that we aren't different. It doesn't mean that we don't have different interests, like I said at the beginning, different hobbies. But it means that on the basics, the essentials, we are one. We have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. We are children of God. And on that basis, the basis of the gospel, we are united in mind. We are one. We are to have the same mind in Christ. Every cell of your body is different. Each has a role to play, but every cell in your body has the same DNA. It has the same code written in it. The master plan for the whole body is in every cell. Every cell is of the same mind. We could say that Christians are to be like a choir. Each one sings with their own voice, and some sing different parts, but everyone sings the same music in harmony, one with another, perfectly united in mind and in thought. Ephesians is what, that's what it calls us to in Ephesians, that we would be perfectly united in mind and in thought. Let's set ourselves against that standard for a second. Are we, I'm not talking about what you've seen exhibited, but are we in this church at Anchor, are we perfectly united, united in mind and in thought? I 
I think that a key to having a healthy view of ourselves, uh, of, of the body, is to have a healthy view of ourselves. Sorry, is that distracting you guys? You can just turn it off if, it's, if, it's, um, if it doesn't work, Sarah. Just leave it like that. Everyone needs to open your Bibles and look on your phones, maybe. I think we need to have a healthy view of ourselves if we're going to have a healthy view of the body. And what I mean by that is we need to see ourselves as we really are. We need to see ourselves as we really are. That we are depraved, that we are in need of saving and in light of being in need of saving, we're able to then not compare ourselves to others in a religious way where I can elevate myself and put others down. I can see myself more highly than I ought to as more spiritual. If you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about Ishmael type of people and Isaac type of people and how they're always at odds with each other. And Ishmael type of people are those people that collaborate with God. They think that I've got I've to do something to attain to a good relational standing with God. And Isaac kind of people are the people that realize that their relational standing is based on God's gracious gift. And they are united with Christ based on what he's done, not what they can do. But the thing is, is these two type of people are always at odds because the people that think that they can bring something to the table, think that they can attribute to their relational standing with God, they begin to look down their noses at the people that believe that I'm, I'm filthy, I'm dirty, I need Jesus. There's nothing good in me. And so what you have in a church is you have this unhealthy tension of people that look down their noses. They don't have a good, they're not self-aware of their own sinful state. And so when people screw up or mess up, they can start to think, did you see that guy over there? Like, did you, like he didn't, you know, he didn't set the chairs out the right way. Or, you know, that, that person was, you know, how dare him? He was late for church. I, I mean, whatever the example is, you all have them in your minds. When we don't have a right view of ourselves, we start to judge others. And that's not just in the church. That carries on into how we treat the world around us. It carries on to how we view people that aren't in our family. We start to think they're outsiders, we're insiders. We're good, they're bad. And so part of being unified is having a healthy view of ourselves. Another thing that this practically looks like is letting love cover a multitude of sin. Letting love cover a multitude of sin. We're pretty quick when someone messes up to, to point it out. We're pretty quick to tear them down and go, look what that person did. But love ought to cover a multitude of sin. We ought to love each other. We ought to think the best in each other. Oftentimes what happens in marriages is that husbands and wives fight because they think the worst in each other. When, 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 when my wife does something that really upsets me, I think, oh, how dare her. She did that on purpose. She was out to get me. And I start to think the worst in her rather than the best in her. So practically what it means to be one in a very simple way is to overlook minor offenses, to not make huge deals out of little tiny things. To be patient with people and to realize that they too are a work in progress, just like yourself. In light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has done for me in saving me, realizing my own depraved state, I can look at others and be gracious. I don't have to think the worst in them or judge them because they're in the same condition that I'm in. Practically, we need to overlook simple things. Another practical way that we can be of one mind is to take short account of things with people when there's, you know, what I mean by short account is not like, you know, minor little offenses. If you see your brother in error, the Bible tells us, you who are spiritual, come alongside in a spirit of love, in gentleness, wanting to restore, speaking the truth in love. We do those things out of love. Oftentimes what happens in our churches is that we correct not through tears, not through grief. We correct because I want to be seen as the one that's correcting. There's something wrong with you. I'm better than you, so I'm going to correct you. We need to be quick to be corrected. We need to be quick to encourage each other. We need to be able to point people back to the Lord. But it needs to be done through tears. It needs to be done through tears, family. When you see your brother or sister in sin, it ought to cause tears in you. It ought to cause you to grieve for them. And when you come to them, it's not out of pride. Pride. 
It's not out of religiosity. It's out of love for their good. Oftentimes what happens in a church is that when you see your brother in error, when I see my wife in error, I go to Brad and tell her. And Brad goes to, you know, others and tells them and tells them and tells them. And it causes waves and ripples all through the church. When your brother's an heir, if it's an area that's a blind spot in them, pray for them. Pray for them. And then go to them in love, in gentleness, in a heart to restore. Make sure, though, practically, that you're dealing with the specks in your, the logs in your own eyes before you're dealing with the specks in your brother's eyes, in your brother's eyes. We are not to be holy police. I know we think we are sometimes. I'm the holy police. My brother's not doing things holy, so I'm going to go police them. It's not our jobs. It's the job of the Holy Spirit, and we get to be a part of that and encouraging our brothers, pointing to the Lord, but we have to be very careful, church. Very careful. Have this mind that was also in Christ Jesus. Be of one mind. One thing I want to also say in this is what it doesn't mean to be family. It doesn't mean that being a family means that all of our needs are met in the family. I want to say that very clearly because we can get this mindset that this is how the church ought to teach and how it ought to love and how it ought to shepherd and how it ought to care for me, and the church isn't doing that. And so I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to speak evil of the church. And, but here's what happens. We think that. We think that the church is where we get our ultimate needs met. And can I encourage you, body, family, that the head is Jesus of the church. The head is Jesus. This is where you need to go to get your needs met. Yes, the family ought to reflect a loving, caring organism that cares one for another, but don't replace Jesus with the church, if you know what I mean. We're very good at that. We're, re we're really good at putting the church as our ultimate need. And so when I'm not getting my ultimate needs met by the church, they're not caring for me, loving me, they're not being a family, I can start to be really saddened and start to grieve and actually go and tell everyone about how bad the church is at loving me. But can I encourage you that, uh, yes, we are. It's not a cop-out. We are to be a family. We are to bear each other's burdens. We are to love each other. But don't idolize the church. The church isn't our God. Our God is Jesus. All of our needs are met in Christ. He is our everything. The church just is a picture of that, and it should be a picture of that, but don't make it the supreme thing. I've done that in my life. I came from a, I had a very rough upbringing. My family, my dad was a cocaine addict. Uh, I saw a lot of abuse in my family. Um, I remember going on gun chases where my dad would come home from cocaine binges and he would beat my mom. My mom would get us kids, put us in the car, and we'd go chase my dad around town. Or my dad would not come home for weeks. And so we would go looking for him. We'd find him strung out in the back of trucks with several women in the back of the truck with him. I saw more as a kid than most kids should have to see. And um, it wasn't a healthy family. It wouldn't would be what I call a healthy family situation. And so when I came to faith, I put my faith in Jesus, I just had this expectation that the church would be different. The church would love and care for me well, that I wouldn't see unhealthiness in the family of God. And so what began to happen in my life is I began to put the church up on a pedestal. And then when people failed me and people disappointed me, it crushed me because I had such a high expectation that the church would be, you know, a healthy family. And it ought to be but it's not my everything. And it wasn't until I began to realize that yeah, the church can fail me even. Friends can fail me, but Jesus will never fail me. Jesus is my constant. Jesus is my God. So I want to encourage you guys that what it means to be the family is that we do things well. We have harmoniousness. We're one, but it doesn't mean that, we, that the churches are everything. I've heard a lot of people come to me and be really sad by how they've been treated. And I, ended, I want to be sympathetic to that but I also want to encourage us to look to Jesus, cling to Jesus in the midst of this. Here at Anchor, we believe that the best way that we do community, that we do family, is in our gospel communities. Um, throughout the week, we meet all over the city, and we do family together. We, what, what that means is we have a meal together, we talk with each other, we pray with each other, we go through discussion questions, but what these, envir what these are, they're environments where we can 
you know, we have 150 people or 130 people at Anchor where we can chunk it down into smaller groups and we can really do life with each other. We can share where we're struggling. We can share where we need prayer. We can be encouraged one with another. We can care for each other well. I encourage you guys, if you're not in the gospel community, it's the best thing that we have at Anchor as far as what it means to be in community, to have a family that cares. We're also not naive at Anchor to think that there is no relational tension. That there's no one in Anchor that, you know, that, that is slandering or backbiting each other. We're here. As long as we're here, there's going to be the tendency. Because we're being made perfect. We're, we're growing. We're, we're being sanctified. But we're still, we're still sinners. We still screw up. And, and so I want to encourage you guys to go straight to the people that you have struggles with. Encourage, I want to encourage you guys to, to be unified in Christ. We'll move on. That trait took a long time, but the other ones won't take quite as long. Next, he says, all of you be sympathetic. That is, feeling what others feel so that you can respond with sensitivity. When we're one, when we're united in Christ, then we'll also be sympathetic. When one part of the body hurts, the whole body will hurt and we'll uphold the body of Christ. And sympathetic doesn't mean that you're always there to give an answer. Oftentimes, we just want to fix people. We want to give answers. We want to tell them the right way. This is what you do with this. But I want to encourage you in being sympathetic just to listen to your brothers and sisters. Just be a good listener. Sit with them. Sympathize with them. I remember one time there was a, a guy that came uh, to a place I was working. He was a Christian guy and he told me this, that he was going through this horrible time and that I'm not, I won't get into the details, but there was abuse, uh, sexual abuse that had happened and uh, in, within his family, and he was grieving. And, and I was young, and I just wanted to give him the answer, you know? I wanted to tell him what to do with it. Oh, you know, God works all things together for good. Don't worry, it's all going to work out. Don't worry, it's all going to be fine. Jabbing him with the sword, you know? Don't worry, and I quoted all these Bible verses to him, and he, he looked at me at the end, and he said, would you just shut up? Would you just shut up? Because I just, I just need you to cry with me. I just need you to, to weep with me. I'm going through a hard time. I don't need advice. I just need you to weep with me. As a body, we ought to be of one mind, but we ought to sympathize one with another. We ought to listen well to each other. Our physical bodies sympathize with our own physical body when something goes wrong. For instance, when I, I hurt my back several years ago, and what happened when I hurt my spine is my, all my muscles tighten up to protect that part of my back. If our body knows how to be sympathetic in its physical nature, we ought to know how to be sympathetic and bear one another's burdens. Thirdly, we are to have brotherly love. Next, all of you be brotherly. That is, don't view each other as strangers or as mere acquaintances but, or as distant relatives, but as brothers. Love each other as brothers. All of you guys, I don't know if all of you have siblings, but several of you out here have siblings. And for me, I have a sibling, and he did some pretty, pretty heinous things to me as a kid, right? I mean, that's what brothers do. They pick on you. They, they, you know, they mess with you. But there's just, I, I was trying to rack my brain this week for the things that my brother did to me, and I can't even really remember them. But I know he was a punk, right? I know he was. Like the only one I can think of is he would get me to be his slave. He'd be like, all right, I'm going to time you. You've got 15 seconds to run down to the garage and get this for me. And, and, and every single time it was always like 14, 15. I would just make it because he didn't really count and he just wanted me to go and be a slave for him. I mean, it was rude, right? He just wanted me to do whatever he wanted me to do for him. But I don't remember a lot of the things because there's, there's, this, there's this, just this love that I've got from my brother that just, you know, it doesn't matter. I love my brother. We as a church ought to love one another. Remember, this is what the measure Jesus gave to the world to identify his true disciples. By this you will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. John 13. Next, the fourth trait is that you would all have 
kind-heartedness. That you'd be kind-hearted. It's not a word about our conduct. It's about our insides. Literally, your innards, your belly. The literal translation of the Greek here means feel generous in your belly one for another. Be well disposed to each other in your deeps. It's the exact opposite of hypocrisy that acts tender but feels malice. We are to actually feel kind in our inward being. It's the same word as compassionate. We're to be compassionate one for another. We're to have intestinal fortitude for one another. Mercy, concern one for another. Somewhat like the Good Samaritan, right? This Good Samaritan story that you've probably all heard about in the Bible where this guy is just laying by the side of the road and he's overlooked by a few different religious people or good people and then he's picked up by this Samaritan and, and this Samaritan just is kind to him. Overly kind to him. We ought to be kind one to another and not just kind in our outward actions but we, we ought to have a, a heart of kindness for each other. And fifthly, we are all to be humble in spirit. In light of the gospel, we're to live with a right view of ourselves and a right view of others. Humility is understanding that we're nothing apart from what God has done on our behalf. Humility causes us to see people in that light. Again, it's not just that we're to act the role of a, of a servant, but that inside, with all authenticity, with all lowliness, we are to feel utterly dependent on God for life and breath and intelligence and an emotional stability. And that's then to work itself out in how we relate to others. We realize that I need everything. Everything is a gift. And it causes me not to be proud towards others. says in Philippians 2, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests only, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he, hum- in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus was our perfect example of humility. He humbly was, he was one with the Father. He considered himself of no reputation, came down in the likeness of man that he might bear the price of our sin on Calvary. He, 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 was, he, he exemplified what it meant to humble himself. We too are to be humble in mind, one towards another, not considering ourselves better than others. And so there's these five qualities. They're all supernatural. They're all impossible, I might add. They're all descriptions of not only how we outwardly act, but how we are to be inwardly. We are to have a common mindset, sympathetic in feeling, be a family of love, kindly disposed in the depths of our innards, humble in spirit. That's an unusual human being. And what Peter's calling each and every one of us to is impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us. You see, all of these characteristics, he's not just saying, go be this. He's saying, you are this, now live out your identity that is this. Your identity is in Christ. And in Christ, you are these things already. Don't try and attain to it. Be it. I mean, you can sum up the whole book of Peter in be who you are. Be who you are. How do you live on the fringes of culture? Be who you are. In Christ, where the rest of the world is searching for their identity, trying to figure out who they are, we are in Christ. That's our identity, and everything 
is already ours. We just need to appropriate what is already ours. This strange individual that is, exhibits these traits is in Christ. That's how we live these things out. Got to move quick. Verse 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So if all those traits are inward, here's the outworking. Don't revile when you're reviled. Don't, that's based on our words. Don't do evil deeds for evil deeds. That's our actions. The outworking of if we're a family, we ought to not revile. We ought to not speak words that are harsh to others. We ought not to have actions that are harsh with each other. We're not to repay those in the church or those that are outside the church with evil when we've been treated poorly. The natural response to hostility is retaliation, right? We like to retaliate when we've been hostily treated. This is what all the terrible ethnic conflicts all over the world are all about. One group wrongs another and decides the rest of its existence is to repay that wrong. Only the love of Jesus can break that cycle, a cause us to love our enemies. We are to be a blessing to others, not a cursing. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother, what more are you than they? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? We are, when we are reviled, we are retaliated against. We're not to return evil for evil. We're actually, the outworking of these five characteristics is that we love people. We treat them with blessing. We do good unto people. One of the best examples I've seen of this recently is I had a friend that, was persecuted for his faith, was treated bad. Well, I wouldn't say he was persecuted for his faith. There was a friend of mine who was murdered recently with his nine-year-old daughter. Some of you might have read about it on the internet. There was a guy in America who went on a rampage, shot people, and um, for no reason. He had a fight with his girlfriend, and this guy went on a rampage and shot this person. And what happened was, as he's dying, being shot, my, my friend looked over to his wife and said, please forgive him. Don't, don't, don't hold this thing against him. This thing that he's done in killing you know, our daughter, don't hold it against him. It was his last words. And his wife is now looking, you know, looking for opportunities to love the family. The, the, the guy took his own life. But this wife is looking for ways of practically loving the family of this guy who did this thing. That's radical. That is radical to do those sort of things. We are to bless when we are cursed. The next thing that Peter does here is he moves into a quote from Psalm 34 and verse 10. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Why do we do good? Why do we bless when we're cursed? Because the eyes of the Lord are on us. We do all for the glory of God. That's all that Peter's saying, basically, in bringing up that, that verse out of Psalm chapter 30, or 134, or Psalm 34, sorry, is that if you want to have a good life, you want to live a good life, bless those that curse you. Why? Because the Lord's eyes are upon you. He's watching you. He's well pleased with you. He loves you. <laughs> Moving on. 
Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is a rhetoric question. He's basically saying, if you do good, if you, if you bless when you're treated badly, when people treat you evilly, if you bless, if you return blessing for cursing, who is there that will harm you? Well, the answer is there's a lot of people that will harm you. It's a rhetoric question. It's like the, the question that says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Well, everyone can be against us, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if everyone's against us. It doesn't matter if we're harmed for being zealous for doing good, for returning good for evil. When we're cursed, giving blessing, it doesn't matter. Because if we do those things, we are still in Christ. Doesn't matter if people can harm us. Doesn't matter. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So this is the section where Peter moves from not only do we treat each other well, not only do we not repay evil for evil within the church or even repay evil for evil without in conclusion, but we also need to be ready to give a hope, an answer to people for the faith that's within us. We need to be ready to give a hope, give an answer for the hope that we have. How do we give an answer for the hope that we have? What does it mean to be ready to make a case for your hope? Wherein does the readiness consist? How are we to get ready and stay ready? As I posed these questions to myself, another text came to mind when Jesus says something about readiness for witness. In the last week of his life, Jesus warns his disciples and, and Luke that unbelievers would persecute them and hand them over to prison and bring them before kings and governors. And then he says, Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you're going to answer them. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And so the least that we can see or say from this command of Jesus is that there's a, a wrong way to get ready to make a case for your hope, and there's a right way to get ready to make a case for your hope. There's a wrong way, and there's a right way. I think that oftentimes, we think that having a hope means that we need to go out and have a polemic approach to defend the faith. We need to tell everybody that, you know, Jesus is right. We need to have all the facts. We need to know it all. We need to line it up so that when people that are asking us questions, we're ready to give an answer. The way I've always read this verse is in light of, you know, study to show yourself to prove, a workman unto God, not being ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be ready to give an answer in season and out of season for the hope that's within you. Be ready to give an intellectual answer. And so I, I used to do that. I used to study up and know all of the different, you know, philosophical arguments to faith. I, I don't think that's what Peter's saying here. I don't think that's, what we're, what we're seeing in the text. I think that's more what Jesus warned against doing, that you would study up, be ready to give a defense. What it's saying here is that this hope, this hope that you have is going to be the apologet. It's going to be the defense. As you hope in Christ in the midst of persecution, in the midst of being in the fringes of culture, as you have a hope, a living hope, the world will see that and will want it. And when the world does see it and wants it, then with all gentleness and with all love, by all means, tell them about that hope. But they're going to be the ones that are coming to you and asking, what is this hope that you have in you? And, and so I believe what Peter is telling us is to get hopeful. Get hopeful, church. What are you hoping? 
What do you honestly hope in? Is your hope in your career advancement? Is your hope in family or marriage? Or what is it that you have hope in? Because if your hope is in something other than the finished work of Jesus on your behalf, then it makes sense that when people come to you, you just give them an intellectual answer. But if your hope is in what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf, then you just get to share the hope that's within you, that has set you free, that has caused you to have life more abundant. It says in Hebrews, we have Hebrews, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What it's saying is that our hope is in Jesus. You guys all know the story of how Jesus hung on the cross. The veil was torn into, which gave us full access into the Holy of Holies, which was where the, you know, the Jewish uh, tradition was where you would go and have communion with God. But that veil has been torn so that we can now enter boldly into that throne room and we can have constant, intimate fellowship with the living God. It's an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, that goes behind the veil, enters in for us, and allows us to have a relationship with God. And so you want to know the answer of how we are to act outward? We know how we're to act inward as a family. How do we act outward? We have hope. We have hope in Jesus. This is what the whole passage is concluding on. Get hope, you guys. How do I get hope, Brian? Remind yourself of the gospel. Jesus, the forerunner, has gone behind the veil. He has made way for each and every one of you to have full access to the living God and to have relationship with him. Get hope. I haven't asked Sally this, but... Um, something I've really appreciated this in Anchor is I've seen different people that are, are really hopeful in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering. And um, I have been so blown away by seeing Sally in our church. She has gone through immense suffering physically. And in her, if you guys know Sally, in her suffering, she has a hope that is just unexplainable. It's unexplainable. It is countercultural. It is something that demands an explanation because she has joy. She has hope against all hope. In the midst of suffering, she has this, just, I just love hugging Sally because she's so full of joy. She's just like, even if she's like in pain, she's like, she'll come up and give you these huge hugs, so full of joy. That's the kind of hope we ought to exhibit in are Jesus. And I can tell you that Sally's hope is not just in the physical body. Her hope is in the eternal. Our hope ought to be in the finished work of what Jesus has done for us, church. So we ought to have a great inward approach as we love one another as a family, as we treat each other as a family, and that ought to then play itself out in a living hope outside, to the outsiders that would demand an explanation of our lives because they see us as hopeful. Um, I'm going to pray for us. To my right and to my left are a couple communion stations. And uh, I would love for you guys to remind yourself of the hope that you have. If you're feeling hopeless, if you're feeling discouraged, um, as I welcome the band up, I want to encourage you that your hope is secure. Your hope is steadfast. Your hope is constant. Your hope is accomplished. It's done. Our hope isn't wishful thinking. Our hope isn't, oh, I wish, I hope that this happens. Our hope is a guarantee. Our hope is a guarantee. So as you come to these tables, you're really, you're remembering what Jesus has done on your behalf, how he has resurrected you to a living hope. He's given you a new identity. And out of that new identity, you will be able to love each other well. You'll be able to treat each other well and you'll be able to be an example to the world around you. So let me pray as the band comes up and as you take those elements, reflect on those things. I thank you for your word. Thank you that...
You have given us a living hope. Thank you that we don't need to muster up a sense of hope. We don't need to try and attain a sense of hope. You've already given us everything, Lord. And we want to confess that um, often even as a family, we don't love each other well. That we tear each other down, God. We elevate ourselves and God, would you change that in us? We pray that this church would be a reflection of a beautiful bride, God. Arrayed in beauty that walks down that aisle, God, clean and pure because we love each other well. And God, that that would be a witness to everyone around us. That our hope would be a witness to everyone around us, God. Thank you for your word. Pray that you would transform us. We ask it in your strong name. Amen.